Welcome back to the first post-Thanksgiving episode of Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks for joining me. It's uh, it's only been two weeks since the last podcast. It feels like two months, so I'm happy to be back talking with you. Um, we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction today. As we've talked about over the last couple of episodes, we're we're moving away from purely being focused or even primarily being focused on the Camarena case and the last NARC and Agent Perez and, and all of that stuff. And that's always going to be our core. I've said that over and over and over. But we're going to diversify a little bit. We're going to spread out. We're going to look at things that are tangential to it. And over the break... There were a couple of comments from people, uh, mostly people that I know, people, uh, you know, kind of in my social circle who have listened to the podcast. And one thing that came up a couple of times was, look, if you're talking about stuff outside of the Camarena case, stuff outside of your book, which we read, then you're using names and terms and things that we don't really know. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about three things. And the title of this podcast is going to be El Mayo, El Mencho, and a Brief History of Mexican Cartels. Now, before we jump into it, I want to make a couple of big caveats. This is going to be a high-level examination of those topics, okay? As I started working on this, there are 50 or more places that we can jump in. We can do future podcasts. We can bring on guests. Things that we can do to explore in depth a number of these various issues. Okay, But we're not doing that today. This is going to be an overview to show people, again, who are interested, who are listening, but might not have quite the same background. And because of that, keep in mind that anytime you go, yeah, but, or what about this? Again, those probably are going to be things that we will talk about later or that we could talk about later. Things that would require a little bit more in-depth analysis and discussion. And then the last thing to keep in mind is because we're going high level, there are going to be some things that I'll say about these topics that some people might not agree with. And so I'm going to try to point those out where I can. But again, if you, if you think you know something that I don't, it might well be that, again, for these discussions, I'm only trying to hit the highlights, trying to hit the generally accepted thought processes uh, and and again, I'll try to note when there is some controversy about it. So with those caveats, let's start off by talking about kind of the Mexican cartels and how they ended up where we're at and who are the major cartels. Now, one of the things that's really hard and 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 i also find very interesting is it's not like you know fantasy football where the rosters come out and you know who's playing for who 
there's a lot of movement sometimes between cartels. There are different factions. There are some people on various social media sites who act like they know, um, you know, who belongs to which group and things. And they may be right all the time, some of the time, none of the time. It's really hard to know. So with that in mind, here's kind of a, a general idea of how the cartel system set up and who the main players amongst the Mexican cartels are today, right? So we're going to start way back in 1985. And we've talked over and over about the fact that there was nothing known as the Guadalajara Narcotics Cartel prior to February 7, 1985. The DEA called the group of traffickers in Guadalajara at the time, La Familia, because they all came from the same towns in Sinaloa. But um, they weren't a a cartel in in any way that you would think of that. What had existed at the time, and, and then for a period of years, was something called the plaza system. And essentially that was an understanding that certain people controlled certain geographic areas. They weren't really cartels because there wasn't the vertical infrastructure and the vertical hierarchy that you see in cartels today. But that's really the genesis, the antecedents to today's cartels. Now, we've talked a lot about Felix Gallardo. If you watched Narcos Mexico, you know, there's the perception that that he was the political kingpin, you know, the godfather, El Padrino, and that he was the one who put the plaza system together, or better said, was the one that was able to use his influence, his skills, his political contacts to kind of keep all the plaza bosses happy. Whether or not that's exactly how it happened is something that we can talk about later. But that's basically how things were operating through 1985 and then really through 1989 or so when Felix Garda was finally arrested. Remember, Agent Camarena was killed February 7, February 8, 1985, April 1985. Carlo Quintero is arrested in Costa Rica. Fonseca is arrested in Puerto Varda. Felix Gallardo kind of went underground, was fairly quiet, moved to Guadalajara, and uh, was able to keep doing what he was doing, but on a more low-key basis. And then he was finally arrested in um, April of 1989. So sometime after his arrest, he um, had his lawyers get some of the nation's, you know, what you call the top drug traffickers, and I'll call them the plaza bosses, okay? Um, And they all got together in Acapulco, and they talked about the territories and the plazas and how Felix Gallardo wanted those split up And again, that's not exactly how it happened. It's a little bit more, all right, let's everybody agree that 
now we have these plazas, we have these territories, here are the bosses for those territories. And that really, again, is the antecedent. That's how the cartel system started. And and the move away from again, you're going to be you're going to hear from various people that they still talk about the plazas and stuff, but the structure just was different. So I think this is how you moved from the old world structure of the plaza bosses to the current cartel system. So he gets everybody together, or his lawyers do, and they make a couple of decisions. Again, whether this is all from Felix Gallardo, if there's more discussions. But what comes out of this is Tijuana is going to the Ariano Felix brothers. They were the nephews of Felix Gallardo. They later later become known as the the Ariano Felix Organization or AFO. We're going to have somebody come and talk to us. Probably not next week, but hopefully the week after. Some of it may depend on the holidays. But talk to us specifically about AFO. Um, the Ciudad Juarez route went to the Carrillo Fuentes family. Miguel Caro Quintero got the Sonora Corridor. Um, and I think, <laughs> all of a sudden, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that I said that everybody, you know, the Guadalajara cartel kind of had come from Sinaloa. Um, they really came from Sonora. So if I did say that earlier, I apologize. But Miguel Caro Quintero is going to run the Sonora Corridor. Um, the Pacific Operations, and we're going to talk specifically about them in just a minute. They went in large part to um, Joaquin Guzman, Loera, uh, El Chapo, and somebody by the name of Hector Luis Palma Salazar. Um, Shortly after this time, Ishmael Zambada Garcia, El Mayo joined, and you know that's when you really got the Sinaloa cartel. Um, and again, we'll talk about those in in just a minute. Um, so those are kind of the big distributions of power as a result of this, um, and. What's interesting is Felix Gardo was still able to kind of, you know, have his hands in things, even though he knew he he had to make this distribution because he was in jail. But then in about 1993, he went from minimum security to high security. There were, you know, we've talked about it before, um, you know, the the luxuries that were afforded to Caro and Fonseca and uh, Felix Gallardo in prison were taken away. And so in or about 1993, you can really say that's when, for all practical purposes, Felix Gallardo lost any remaining control, influence, etc., that he had over the other drug dealers. And that's when you can, you again, you can kind of think of it as a situation where, you know, Felix was the glue. He's the one that kind of held them together. He had a good knack for kind of the political elements of it. Once he was out, he really ended up in a situation where um, everybody was more acting for themselves rather than having 
any kind of cohesive elements. This is also right about the time when you had some big fights between uh, AFO and Tijuana and El Chapo um, with the, the Sinaloa cartel. We're going to talk about that at a different time. So just keep in mind kind of how this is progressing. All right. So what are the dominant cartels in Mexico today? Here are the ones that we're going to talk about, the ones that I think are the primary cartels with an influence in the United States, a direct influence, number one. Number two, the ones that you hear their names in the media reports. And three, the ones that have the most um, continuing power and continuing influence. And again, you know, there, there are times when, um, you know, you know, or the power nexus between different cartels will ebb and flow. Someday, some, you know, for a while, the Zetas were in control, and, you know, or were the, the dominant cartel in certain regions. So it's, it's a fluid situation. It changes regularly. It changes regularly. Also, because you have, uh, you you have people uh, fighting each other. You have some internal conflicts. You have leaders who are being captured or killed. It's just a whole bunch of things. And then, as I said earlier, you have a lot of factions. And so we're not even going to try to get into all the factions. Who are the big cartel players? Well, the number one one, poor English, so forgive me there, um, but the number one cartel to talk about is the Sinaloa cartel, often re- referred to in Mexico as the Pacific cartel, um, especially in the, the Sedena hacks that we've talked about. That, again, is a little bit of a, of a residual um, naming or nomenclature from these early days of the cartel, primarily before El Mayo solidified his role in the Sinaloa cartel. So it has um, been the primary cartel, or a primary cartel, again, since about 1989. It, more than any other cartel, has been able to maintain its power, its influence in Mexico over the years. As we talked about, you know, it was kind of formed by El Chapo, and and then El Mayo came along, and um, there was a, kind of a joint element of power. Now, one of the things I want to say about that is there are some people who have suggested that, and, and it's come out real recently in a, a YouTube appearance by uh, somebody by the name of Ed Calderon, who people might have heard of, but... There has been the suggestion that El Chapo was never, never a co-leader of the cartel. Okay, that it always had been El Mayo, and that El Chapo, um, you know, was secondary or even tertiary. But for lack of a better way of putting it, he had really good PR. Um, I don't know if that's true. I'm not really sure how much it matters. What we do know, of course is that in 2014, 
El Chapo was arrested. Uh, he was imprisoned and he escaped in July of 2015. Um, he ended up being recaptured. Uh, he was convicted in U.S. federal court in uh, New York in 2019. And now he lives down the road from me in Florence, Colorado at Supermax. His arrest, his extradition, his placement in Supermax definitely resulted in some type of fracture in the Sinaloa cartel. Okay. They, his sons, El Chapitos, and he's got the two sons, we've talked about them before, have um, control, authority over a portion of the Sinaloa cartel. El Mayo's group has uh, control over another portion. They seem to work together when it's convenient and in their best interests. Uh, in my newsletter, we talk about a specific instance where they're fighting off uh, CJNG to avoid uh, that cartel getting more of an influence in the state of Durango. So, but there are def definitely battles and, and um, divisions between those groups. And then you have you know, the subgroups of each group. And um, so to, to, to say there's not a clear split within the Sinaloa cartel would be an incorrect statement. There clearly is. But again, when it's, you know, when it's in their interests, they're going to work together. They're still more loyal to each other than they are to most of the other cartels, especially um, CJNG. Okay. Um, the Sinaloa cartel is, um, you know, the principal drug trafficker in many of the areas of Mexico, particularly the Pacific coast. Um, it has pretty expansive international operations, clearly has some alignment with uh, elements in China, whether governmental or extra-governmental. For our purposes, too, it's important to note that they are, the, the Sinaloa cartel, uh, CDN, is known to export and distribute um, methamphetamine, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, uh, fentanyl into U.S. cities. And it has particular influence, if not sole influence, but particular influence, especially in cities such as uh, Phoenix, Los Angeles, Denver, Atlanta, Chicago. We talk uh, again in the newsletter either this week or the week before about how some of the tentacles of the uh, Sinaloa cartel have reached into places like Wisconsin in the United States. All right. If we're kind of looking historically, one of the other main groups was the Beltran Leva organization. And this one's really difficult to, to kind of get your arms around uh, for reasons that we'll talk about in just a minute. BLO, Beltran Leva organization was formed 
uh, primarily by four Beltran Leva brothers, Arturo, Carlos, Alfredo, and Hector. Started off and it had been really aligned with the Sinaloa cartel, but, you know, again, was doing its own thing. Um, there are those that will say the BLO no longer exists. All of the brothers have been killed or incarcerated. Um, others will say, sure it does. It oftentimes works through what you might call loose alliances with larger cartels, CJNG, the Juarez cartel, previously the Zetas. Um, I tend to believe more the latter than the former. Um, I know that internal documents at the DEA and some things that they have put out to talk about transnational uh, criminal organizations still refer to the BLO and still refer, refer to areas of BLO influence in the United States. So I think that, um, um, you know, to, to suggest that it doesn't exist anymore would probably be incorrect, even though it has morphed. And one of the things you see about the cartels is they've got a, an amazing ability to, uh, you know, to redefine themselves if, when, and as necessary. So if you want to go ahead and say BLO still exists in some way, shape, or form, you generally have two groups out there, um, Los Rojos, Los Guerreros Unidos, um, the latter of which is really appears to be pretty prominent in the heroin trade. Again, in the United States, uh, U.S. law enforcement will say that the BLO traffics primarily in uh, marijuana, cocaine, and methamphetamine in, and heroin. Uh, primary influences are in Phoenix, Chicago, and Los Angeles. The one you've heard about, um, I would imagine, a lot uh, recently, especially, is the Cartel Jalisco New Generation, CJNG. It was formed in or about 2010 when a group split off from the Sinaloa cartel, DEA identifies CJNG as one, one of the most powerful and fastest growing in Mexico and the United States. Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice has said in uh, some documents that the CJNG is one of the five most dangerous transnational criminal organizations in the world and responsible for egregious violence, loss of life, and increasing vol volumes of polydrug trafficking. The group's leader is um, Ruben Cervantes, also known as El Mencho. El Mencho has been in control of CJNG for most of its existence and has done an amazing job along with El Mile, which is where we're going to talk about the, both of them in a minute, um, but of, of staying in power, staying in control. It's believed that El Mencho has um, some liver issues um, or kidney issues. I think it's kidney, actually, now that I say it. But anyways, some, some problems um, and has needed dialysis. Um, and has built hospitals just for his, you know, for his um, use. 
February of this year, there were some rumors that he might have died. Most people think that those were only rumors and that he is still around. The, uh, the current thinking is that his distributing power uh, a little bit more than he had in the past. But I don't think there's any real debate that he has uh, complete control at least as you know the the final arbiter of of any issues over the cartel um CJNG distributes all kinds of drugs very 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 big into um methamphetamine and fentanyl primary locations for them include Los Angeles, New York, Chicago and Atlanta and um, it also uh, is said that CJNG has a presence and, and a, a real presence in at least 24 out of Mexico's 32 states. So it's a big deal. Um, the Garf Cartel was started in uh, a, a town called Metamoros way back in the early 1900s. Um, in about 2010, it had a group of enforcers, they called Los Zetas, that were um, primarily made up of former military. They had a, a split, huge fights between the two groups. The result is, in, in some respects, that the, the Gulf Cartel um, was greatly diminished, greatly weakened, except in very specific areas around the border that it controls and it has a strong presence still in Houston. All right, a couple more to talk about quickly. The Juarez cartel and La Linea, they had been uh, aligned with the Sinaloa cartel, but then there was fighting for control of Ciudad Juarez and for the state of Chihuahua. Um, Again, their presence, like some of the others, has faded over years, but they still apparently have a lot of power, a lot of influence in Ciudad Juarez, in El Paso. Uh, they um, also have a lot of presence in uh, cities including Denver, Chicago, Oklahoma City, so they kind of are more of a Midwest-based cartel, primarily dealing in methamphetamine, marijuana, marijuana, and cocaine. One of the interesting newish ones is a group called La Familia Michoacana. Um, they're based in the state of Michoacan. Um, here's where things get really confusing. There was La Familia Michelle Khan. Now there's the uh, La Familia Nueva Michelle Khanna. Maybe the same group in some respects, maybe different. Uh, I think the thought primarily is, and, and we're going to go back and talk about this for a specific reason that I'll mention in just a second here. But I think the thought is that some remnants of the original group got back into the business or their family did and 
tried to reactivate. What's interesting about the La Familia Nueva is that they are the biggest distributors of fentanyl in Mexico. The cartel with the biggest uh, influence on the fentanyl trade is La Familia La Familia Nueva, Michoacana. Okay. So one of the things that you see in some intercartel you know, battles, gesturing, posturing, is the Sinaloa cartel and CJNG in particular trying to exert more influence in the state of Michoacan in order to tap into this fentanyl trade. Um, two more that are really important to talk about, Los Zetas, we talked about them a little bit. Uh, they were, depending on how you looked at it, either real badasses or just really, really awful people. I mean, they were all old military. Uh, they had a reputation for being particularly savage. They were known for massacres. They left body parts in public places. They put, were the first ones to kind of, you know, take from the jihad in in uh, the Middle East and post killings on the internet. Their critics would say they, um, w- you know, were ruthless in the sense that they would willingly, knowingly, or at least not care uh, if they killed civilians. You have um, also um, elements of this group that still survive, they're still around, that really make more money in things like organized violence, theft, extortion, human smuggling, kidnapping, than, uh, than they really do in drugs. And if you remember, we talked a week or two ago about the underreported influence of cartels in criminal activity that has nothing to do with drugs. We talked about tapping into um, oil and natural gas infrastructure and stealing that. Of course, human smuggling, a big issue. So again, that's part of what they do. You're going to see two different groups um, of the Zetas. Primarily, you'll have the Northeast Cartel which is um, kind of prominent in, in uh, Nuevo Laredo and other places. You're also going to have the old school Zetas. At this point in the U.S., the group is you know, more in the south. So Laredo, Dallas, New Orleans, uh, a little bit in uh, Atlanta, but that's not where their, their real power is any, any longer. Uh, the AFO, the Tijuana cartel, um, most of the Ariano Felix brothers have been apprehended or killed. The role of one or more of the sisters in the AFO organization is subject to debate. And again, we're going to have somebody who investigated them for more than a decade come in and talk with us about them. So I'm not going to go into great detail. There had been a thought that outside of Tijuana um, and, and kind of the proximity that there, that 
the influence of the Tijuana cartel or the AFO had been dissipating. That may not be the case, at least not now. There appears to be some type of an alignment with CJNG, which may be helping them to regain some power and uh, authority. Again, that's one of the questions we're going to ask uh, when we have um, have our guests come in and talk about it. So here's um, here, here's where that stays, puts us. All right, you've got all these cartels, and then you've got a lot of smaller groups. You've got a lot of splinter groups. You've got some independents, all of these sort of things. But what we really know today is the two dominant cartels, again, are the Sinaloa cartel and CJNG. And what do they both have in common? They both have clear leaders, and again, El Mayo's relationship with Los Tupitas means there's you know there's some division, but even if you accept that within his group, you have a clear leader who's been there for a long time and never been arrested, and the same is true of El Mencho. Hey, big, you know, there's there's no question that they were as big uh, a, a player in drug trafficking, and the other activities in Mexico as El Chapo, and yet they've never been arrested. At least as big post-arrest as Caro Quintero, and that they haven't been arrested. I think there's, there's two things to take from that. One is having this queer, dominant leader who can... Um, who can act in a way that engenders loyalty, respect, probably a healthy dose of fear, uh, is important. It helps keep the organization together. You have less chance of there being splinters. And as we'll talk about, there have been serious repercussions if people have tried to break off from from the, the particular groups. I also think what's important is you know, we don't see El Mayo having uh, meetings with Sean Penn like El Chapo did. Uh, we don't hear stories of El Mayo being obsessed with beauty queens and, and things. We don't hear stories about El Mencho being in discos in uh, El Mo- Los Mochis. You know, those sorts of things. So you have leaders who have decided to lay relatively low to not embarrass the government, to not put them in a position where you know their arrest or capture becomes more important or you know there's there's a, an external reason for it. And in exchange, they've been able to kind of keep things under control, right? And and they've been able to assert influence over their cartels for a very long period of time. Uh, some things about El Mayo, and and uh, I, I don't want this to be a um, a lengthy discussion, 
but I do think it's it's uh, it's worth noting. So El Mayo Zambada had had kind of historically worked with the Juarez cartel. Uh, he had connections to the Carrillo Fuentes family, and he also had uh, some strong, long-standing, independent ties to Colombian cocaine suppliers. So, um, you know, we get back to the 1989 where things get split up and the Sinaloa cartel, again, fell into the leadership of, of several former lieutenants um, or, or um, you know, folks who'd been with the cartel for, for a while and Amongst those were El Chapo and others. And then shortly after, El Mayo comes. At that point, you know, they become the dominant cartel in places such as Sinaloa, Durango, Chihuahua, um, Sonora, Nuevo Leon, um, and, and others. To show you how long... El Mayo has had control. And again, let me take one step back. I apologize. So you had kind of a, a various group that took over the Sonora or the Sinaloa cartel uh, after this 1989 meeting. And, and even more so after Felix Gallardo kind of, you know, fell out of any influence in, in 93 or so. It didn't take long for you to have a situation where, as opposed to having four or five co-leaders, somebody took control and leadership. And that somebody for the Sinaloa cartel was El Mayo. So much so that by 1998, again, we're not talking all that long. Um, uh, Zambada was... Um, said to have a bounty on his head from the Mexican government of about 2.8 million U.S. dollars. Uh, in 2006, the administration of Felipe Calderon tried to, to take a, you know, the, the war on drugs to a new level. What was interesting, though, is that the Tijuana cartel really took the brunt of that fight. And, um, you know, if there were blows or damage done to a cartel as a result of this war on drugs under President Calderon, it really was the Tijuana cartel that, that was suffering. One of the things that happened is that as a result of this, there became a little bit of a power void in Tijuana and the uh, Sinaloa cartel through Zambada and, and Guzman, notwithstanding uh, Guzman El Chapo's historic rift with the Ariano Felix brothers, they started to um, make some inroads into Northwestern Mexico. You really had almost a full scale war between those two factions over time. Uh, they say that today the um, 
the Sinaloa cartel still gets a lot of cocaine from Colombia, still uses the sources that um, that uh, El Mayo has had for, for decades. Apparently, one of the things that they're really good at is being able to smuggle co- or cocaine to distribution cells in the United States. And, and as we talked about, we were talking about Arizona, Atlanta, California, Illinois, New York. They really have a sophisticated network of distribution, particularly for cocaine, but not limited, of course, to cocaine throughout the United States. Uh, one of the things that's interesting as well is, you know, for many years, uh, El Mayo really focused on the states of Sinaloa and Durango, um, as well as a large portion of the Mexican coast. One of the things that that had happened for many years is that um, the, the tourist destinations, especially the tourist destinations on the East Coast, so like Can- Cancun and, and other places in Quintana Roo had been somewhat hands-off to uh, the cartels. That's changed a little bit, and and uh, the Sinaloa cartel in particular is one of the cartels definitely making an effort to control more of uh, what goes on in Cancun, Quintana Roo, uh, Playa del Carmen, Tulum, there have been, uh, you know, some well-publicized shootouts in Tulum uh, over the last year or so. Uh, a couple of other quick things about Zambada, El Mayo. Um, in 2011, it was um, suggested that he may have had plastic surgery and then he may actually be able to move kind of through Mexico somewhat openly because of that plastic surgery. Um, In 2019, his son um, actually testified against El Chapo. uh, And uh, in those testimony or that testimony, he said um, that his father's bribery budget was often as much as $1 million per month. $1 $1 million per month with bribes going to many high level Mexican public officials of reinforcing what most everybody had assumed, which is that the tentacles, the connections, the network that El Mayo has into the Mexican government, the Mexican military, the Mexican ministry of defense are significant. Um, the last thing we'll note is kind of the battle that took place between El Mayo and Los Chapitas with respect to Caracantero. The idea that um, El Mayo was willing to give Rafael Caracantero and Miguel Caracantero some high-ranking positions in the Sinaloa cartel, and El Chapitas were really against that. Um, some people believe and I think this is probably the, the most dominant position, is that El Mayo um, had some health issues, really didn't want to have the fight um, to, to install Caro Quintero, uh, the two Caro Quintero brothers, into the organization. 
And so that never took place, but you still now have the rift between Zambada's group and um, El Chapo's son's group, the Los Chapitos. You'll see a lot of times um, where people are talking about the Sinaloa cartel and they will specifically designate which group of the two they're talking about. Um, all right, I want to talk for a couple minutes about El Mencho. Again, we mentioned him quite a bit, so I think it's important for people to understand him. So there used to be a, car, a cartel, the Millennial Cartel, um, and he, he, El Mencho, was a member of really an, an assassination squad, or maybe that's the, the worst possible characterization. At, at best, it was a um, highly armed uh, guard unit that protected um, Armando Valencia Cornelio, who was uh, went by the alias of El Maradona. Uh, in August of 2003, El Maradona was arrested. And about the same time, the, the Zetas really carried out uh, an extensive campaign, an extensive offensive against the Millennial Cartel in Michoacan. Um, the uh, Valencia family actually had to leave. There was a big splintering of this cartel. El Mencho relocated to Guadalajara and um, was able to form an alliance with the Sinaloa Cartel, and particularly a uh, a subgroup of the Sinaloa Cartel headed by Ignacio Cornell, um, who was a uh, lieutenant in the, the Sinaloa Cartel, and most importantly was an ally of El Chapo. So you had this group, uh, Ignacio Cornell, El Mencho, they kind of um, formed an alliance that that worked um, with the Sinaloa cartel and worked on um, handling a lot of the the drug operations and the finances of the Sinaloa cartel in the states of Colima and Jalisco, which, as you know, um, border one another. And they were doing this primarily under the authority of El Chapo. Um, in 2010 or, or so, you had um, further arrests, and you ended up with two groups that had kind of their ancestral connection, if you will, to the Millennial Cartel. So you had La Resistencia, sorry, the Resistance, and then you had Los Marazetas or the Zeta Killers, the latter was headed by El Mencho. Um, and one of the things that happened, you end up in a battle between these two groups, and I think this actually is fascinating. So you've got the Zeta Killers, and you have the Resistance, you've got El Mencho. El Mencho's group started a extensive propaganda campaign against um, the the resistance and against other cartels, 
And what they said was, look, they're doing, you know, they're extorting business owners. They're um, killing civilians. They're harming government officials. We're not going to do that. We're going to be, you know, we're still going to do the illegal stuff that we do, but we're going to protect the average person. And as a result of of the internal fighting, as well as this propaganda campaign, the Matazetas, you know, the Zeta killers, won the battle. Uh, They were really able to consolidate their influence in Western Mexico, and then they changed their name to Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generacion, you know, Jalisco New Generation Cartel, CJNG. Um, At this time, El Mencho really was able to establish himself as the leader. Uh, The group was very aggressive about expanding their territories. El Mencho apparently did a good job of uh, corrupting important governmental officials in the areas they wanted to go. Um, And again, you really have El Mencho as the head of the group. One of the things that um, that the CJNG became known for, still is known for, despite their propaganda, is um, they are really aggressive and have no um, no compunction about using violence. And moreover, they really are pretty sensationalistic in their displays of public violence. And if you've looked at our newsletter, you'll see almost every other week there's something where there's a murder and CJNG leaves a, a, a little placard and says, you know, hey, this was us and here's why we did it. Um, one of the, the things that, that was really interesting a few years back, and I'm going to get to it. So. In March of 2017, uh, let me back up just a, a couple years. Sorry. Um, in 2015, the United States Department of the Treasury um, sanctioned El Mencho under the Foreign Narcotics Kingpin Designation Act. In March of 2017, El Mencho ordered the murder of El Cholo, a former CJN member who had betrayed the CJNG by joining Nueva Plaza Cartel. The plot to murder El Cholo um, failed. El Cholo afterwards um, retaliated by um, really causing, um, uh, creating a new cartel, the Nueva Plaza Cartel, at that same time, um, CJNG co-founder, again, how you call them co-founders, I don't know, but an early member of CJNG, Eric Valencia Salazar, also went to Nueva Plaza Cartel. El Cholo was later captured. And if you really, really want to, you can go um, online onto YouTube and other places and you can find some videos of him being um, interrogated, tortured. He was brutally murdered. He was put um, in a body bag with plastic wrap, put on a park bench in Guadalajara. 
on March 18, 2021, with a sign on him that basically said this is what happens to traders. Interestingly enough, um, El Mencho's wife was um, arrested in November of 2021, November 15th, actually. Her name, Rosalinda Gonzalez Valencia. She was known as La Jefa, uh, the boss. She had a pretty significant reputation in Mexico uh, in her own right, as really being involved in the finances. The thought at the time was this might be a death blow to El Mencho. His wife knows everything that's going on. Other members of the family had been um, arrested. Um, He's had a son, a daughter who'd been arrested in the United States. Again, thought was, ah, now that we've got uh, his wife, that's really going to cause problems. Here we are a year later. I don't think there's any indication of that coming to fruition, at least at this point. So what you still have today, think about it. You know, it was 1989 that things kind of got split up. Felix Gallardo's influence dissipated in 1993 or so. So you're talking... You know, 39, 40 years since then, all right? No, 29 or 30 years. Sorry, can't do math. Um, And during that time, these guys really have been able to stay in power. Again, um, El Mencho came in a little bit later, but has been a dominant force for many years and has been able to do so. So that's the crash course. As I said at the beginning, For every one of these cartels, we could do one, two, or three hours of discussion. For CJNG, for uh, AFO, for BLO, for the Sinaloa cartel, we could do several long discussions. What I really wanted to do was to make sure that everybody had kind of a basic understanding of who the main players are, what their names are, why they're important, and to also trace their influence into the United States, because that's one of the things that's that's important when you're listening to the news. You hear about the, the cartels, you know, who are the ones that are affecting things in the United States, especially as fentanyl becomes more important. And again, we talk a lot, and I've done it, I know, in the podcast in the past, and other episodes just kind of offhandedly said something about El Mayo or El Chapo or Elemento, and I think it's important that everybody uh, get an understanding of who those people are and why they're important, why we mention them. So with that, uh, I'm going to leave the discussion of Elemento, El Mayo, and the cartels for today, but promise you that we will get back into each of them in great detail a little bit later. Next week, we're going to do something a little bit interesting. Um, My assistant is going to come and help me go through a number of questions that have been asked either in emails or uh, in response to the newsletter or otherwise. Things that um, listeners have asked, that other people have asked, that maybe haven't necessarily been directly addressed in the... uh, in the podcast. And I think that'll be 
really interesting. We're trying to break it into two separate groups, kind of general cartel related questions, including things like why don't we use the why doesn't the United States use the military? And then we'll have some other questions that are more Camarena and or the last narc specific. Hope to make that an interesting discussion. And then again, we've got um, an AFO discussion coming up. And with that, I will conclude for today. Thanks for joining. Thanks for hanging in for an hour to discuss the history of the cartels. And I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care.